This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. We've been journeying through uh, the book of Romans, which is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. Paul, whose life was radically changed by Jesus, he became a follower of Christ and began to spread the gospel, and he wrote this letter to his brothers and sisters in Rome, a group of people who were seeking to be faithful uh, in the midst of a giant city that had a lot of power, a lot of significance, a lot of uh, culture, and they're wanting to be faithful to Jesus. And so Paul has been reminding us over and over and over again that we are to live for Jesus by faith. Uh, We don't have a relationship with God because of what we've done. We have a relationship with God because of what he's done. And he came uh, through the person of Jesus to enter into the brokenness of cities, uh, into the struggle of life, into a world of conflict, a world of injustice. He entered into that world so that his people would know him and love him and begin to flourish in him as individuals, in families, in communities of faith to bring about change and hope and renewal in cities and in nations and in the world. And we know that the world is a broken place. We know that there is great hurt on large, massive scales with wars, but also even in the midst of families and our own self-doubt. We know there's brokenness. And yet the gospel reminds us that it's not about what we do, but it's about what Jesus has done. And so we live by, by faith, with hope and with joy. And so at the end of this letter, we're now in chapter 15, There are some instructions that Paul is giving to us as to how we are to live in light of what God's done. He's saying, God has done this great thing to bring you to a relationship with Jesus. Live by faith. But here's how now you are to live that out in community with one another. So we read now the first uh, about half of uh, Romans chapter 15. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches or insults of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance... And through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. 
Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for your word and pray your blessing upon it, this reading, this hearing, and most of all, Lord, the application of it, that as we hear what you've said and we're reminded of what you've done, that we would be so affected that we would not simply be listeners, but that we would be doers of your word. Give us something to do in response to what you have so gloriously and wonderfully done so that it would change our family, it would change our city, it would change our world. Help us to hear in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this summer, I had a chance to see the redwood trees. I've talked about that a couple of times. They're just these big, amazing trees that just grow and grow. Some of them are thousands of years old. And when you stand at the foot of one or when you stand inside one, you just can't believe how tall they get. So have you ever wondered why it is that mosses and lichens don't grow high? I have not really wondered that, but it came up in a conversation I had as I was dropping my ninth grade son off for school this week. He said, and I asked him, he was talking about uh, tracheids, and I asked him, Levi, I said, can you tell me that stuff that's in the, uh, in the trees that helps them to grow tall and that mosses and lichens don't have? And this is what he texted me. He's out of town at a basketball tournament. He said, they're called tracheids, and that's why mosses are not in the category of tracheotypes. The, the phlegm transmits nutrients and minerals throughout the plant, and the xylem transmits water. That's not usually what my son texts to me. <laughs> but that's the reason why these tall trees can get really big, because they have something in them. There are these elongated cells that transport water and minerals through the xylem of vascular plants. There you have it, friends. Tracheids. They build something up to allow something to become significant and strong. And other plants don't have them. Mosses and lichens, sorry, you don't have it, so you're never going to be big and strong. What does that have to do with Romans chapter 15? Well, there's a verse that's embedded in there. Verse 2, Paul says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Paul is encouraging us to build up our neighbors. If you remember, last week, Paul was calling us to grow up, to mature in faith so that we might be more like Jesus. The week before that, it was to wake up. Be aware of what's going on in the world. So we have to wake up, then we need to grow up, and now we are called to build up so that we won't live as mosses or lichens. What does he say? How do we do this? What does it mean for us to build up our neighbor? Well, let's look to the text and see what it says. Verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. What does it mean when he says, we who are strong? Is he talking about those with strong muscles? Is he talking about those with extra endurance? Is he talking about military strength? Is he talking about political power or a strong personality? Is he talking about people who have a strong work ethic or a strong bank account or a strong educational status? Is he talking about any of those? Say no, somebody. 
No. What does it mean when he says we who are strong? Well, we have to go back to last week when he was comparing those who are weak with those who are strong. He was, remember, talking about what was going on in the church in Rome. And he said that those who only eat vegetables are weak, not because he's got anything against vegetarians, but he was saying that there are some in the community that didn't want to eat the meat because potentially it had been dedicated to idols. And they were just saying, hey, look, I don't want to do that. My old tradition is that if I eat meat dedicated to idols, then I'm doing something wrong. And those who were weak were not fully embracing and trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he was contrasting that with the church in Corinth because it was the opposite situation. So when Paul says those who are strong, he's talking about those who are strong in faith. Those who are strong in their understanding of the gospel, right? The gospel is what? That announcement about what God has done to accomplish his purposes in the salvation of souls, to bring people to himself by grace through faith. And those who are strong are not the ones with big muscles or big bank accounts or strong personalities. Those who are strong are the ones who really know and understand that and have learned how to live that out. And he's saying, those who are strong have an obligation to bear with those who are weak. What is an obligation? It's something that I ought to do. I'm morally or legally bound to do something. Paul is saying, if you are strong in faith, you have a legal, moral obligation to bear with, to suffer with, and to encourage those who are not strong in faith. This is your responsibility. This is your calling. This is your commission. You are to do what? To please his neighbor, verse 2, for his good, to build him up. right? Because we don't want a church full of mosses and lichens. Not that there's anything wrong with mosses and lichens. They have their purpose in the world. right? But that's not what we want in the church. We want redwoods and oak trees and dogwoods and orange trees. We want trees that can grow up and do what they're called to do, to produce fruit and beauty and oxygen in the world. And that's what we need in the church, is people to wake up, people to grow up, and then to build up. Who am I talking to? Me? Talking to myself? I'm talking to you, I'm talking to whoever's listening out there, my mom maybe, who knows? Everybody who's hearing this, these words, that's who I'm talking to. We are the strong ones, right? Those of us who are strong, strong in the gospel, we have this obligation is what he says. So this is a sweeping principle of Christian ethics for us. Is that the people with power, strength in the gospel, must be stewards of that power to build people up and please those who are weak. Not to use our power to build up or to enlarge uh, myself or to make myself feel comfortable or to get what I want. Paul is saying I'm under obligation to help those who are weak. He goes on to say it's to build up our neighbor for his good. You see, the way that we change the world, and we, you know, we all look at the world and go, oh man, I wish the world was different. 
The way that we change the world, and this is how the church in Rome, I'm convinced, changed the world. They didn't do it with military power, political power, big rallies. They did it one person, one relationship at a time, where people who were changed by the gospel then went to work and lived out the gospel in their own community, not by saying to people, you're bad if you don't believe the Bible, but they said, I'm going to act with integrity and with joy and with hope and with love because I know the gospel. I know that I'm not defined by my success. I know that I'm not defined by anything other than what God has said about me. So that means I can act with integrity, then I can act with joy, I can sacrificially give my life away. That's what it means to serve and to love our neighbor. And that sounds easy enough, isn't it, right? Help the weak. Let's get to work. We'll just show them where they're weak, we'll build them up, and we'll be on our way. But it's not that easy, is it? It's kind of hard, actually. Um, Someone once said, it's easy to fool someone, but it's hard to convince someone they've been fooled. The weak often don't know that they're weak. They actually sometimes think that they're strong. And when I say they, I mean me and us. So have you ever taught a child how to tie a shoe? It's a fun experience. And I've learned, a wise father that I am, uh, that the best way is not to say, let me just show you how you do it. Just let, me just, show you, just let me just show you how to do it. That doesn't work. I tried that. Sorry, Arden. I've learned the best way to teach a child to tie a shoe is to say, why don't you try it? You experience the tying of the shoe. And you see that it's difficult. And then when you fail at the tying of the shoe, you cry out to your loving father who will show you how the shoe is tied. It's a much better process when you allow the child to experience the brokenness of the shoe tie. Because they say, oh, father, a wise father, please help me to tie my shoe. It's easy, just like this. You get the bunny rabbit ears and you tie them together. Sorry, bunny. Because when the child realizes, I don't know how to do this, and they're much more open to learning how to do it. Because, see, we all know this in life. There's this sense in which we think we know what's best for us and we know how the world works. And until we fail, until we're broken, until we can't do it, we're going to try to do it our way. We're like kids tying shoes all the time. And it's only when we fail and we struggle and we realize that I'm not doing it the right way, then we're open to God teaching us or someone coming alongside us and saying, hey, let me show you how this is done. Here's what I've learned in my uh, life of failing miserably at tying shoes and now learning how to do it, or whatever the case might be. See, the hard part for uh, the strong in faith, helping those who are weak, is that often it seems like those who are weak are actually strong, and the people who are strong are actually weak. There's this kind of weird dynamic. And the hard part for us sometimes is is to just jump in and say, well, let me just show you how to do it. Let me just tell you what it is. Uh, let me just, um, just listen to this podcast that I listened to. Or, or just, just listen to this book, read this book that I read. Or, or this sermon is for you. But the sermon, <laughs> even this one, is for me. And we have this tendency to want to just tell people what to do. And sometimes people don't want to know, hear from us because they think they've got it figured out. But see, Paul is saying to us that those who are weak 
And those who are weak in their understanding and their appreciation and their application of the gospel in their life sometimes actually appear culturally to be really strong people. Sometimes people who are weak in faith present themselves with a real strong personality. I just tell it like it is. Or they have really strong opinions. They have really, uh, they look strong by worldly standards, which makes it difficult for them to understand and know that they actually need help to become strong in faith. How can you receive any help if you don't realize you even need any help? And you know in your own life, until you realize you know that you need help, you're not very much open to it. So one of the ways that we can help those who are weak in faith but strong in the world is to pray for them. Is to pray that they would see that they need help. That they need God. That they can be encouraged in faith and that we can be the people who can help them with that. You see, God can work in a person's life through prayer. And sometimes it means actually praying that the people that we love experience difficult experiences so that they would see that they need God's help. You know, it sounds kind of bad, but maybe you should pray that your friend or your loved one experiences really uh, difficult things in life so they would turn to God. Because if we're always praying for our people and that we love to have success, but they don't know God and they're, they're strong in the world but, but weak in faith, what do we really want for them? We want them to be strong. We don't want bad things to happen to people that we love, but what's the most important thing that could happen to them? That they would know God and love God. And I know for me, I didn't know and love God until I was seeing the brokenness of my life. I, the way I'm solving these problems isn't working. And it's causing problems in my life. And then God, I was like, Lord, you're the one who's true and you're the one who's good. So maybe change your prayer life a little bit for the people that you love. I've prayed for friends that their life would be miserable until they know and love God. Hey, thanks for praying for me, Matt. Really appreciate it. Because I know that their life is going to be miserable until they know and love Jesus because he's the answer to all the problems and all the, the, the struggles. So we pray for them. But what does it mean for us, those who are of us who are growing in our strength in faith? Well, it means everything. It means in every way, as we're strong in faith, understanding and applying the gospel, that we're called and obligated to encourage those who are weak. Let me just consider a few different things. What does it mean with our finances? It means that those who are uh, believers, those who are strong in faith, that have any amount of money, regardless of the amount, we are to use our money to glorify and honor God, to provide for our family, to support and encourage the ministry of the local church, and to bless those who are in need. Certainly the state bears some responsibility to do that, but followers of Jesus, it says, are obligated to support those who are weak. What does it mean for us in church leadership? Well, who is a leader in the church? Right, certainly you could say the teaching elders are, are leaders and the ruling elders, right, and the deacons. But anyone who has anything to do with any decision that happens in the life of the church is a leader in some way. If you get a vote, then you're a leader. If you're a church member, you get a vote. So you lead in some way. That means then, as I think about leading and encouraging and being a part of this specific body of Christ, that I'm called to use my strengths in the gospel to serve those who aren't far along in their faith. So that means then I shift from thinking, how do I get something out of it? What's in it for me? Did I like it? To 
Was God honored in it? And is it accessible to people who are weak in faith? And this is a challenge for us because we all have preferences and traditions and ways that we've connected with God. And what Paul is saying, I think, is to say we need to set aside what really moves and connects with us in some ways to serve and allow others to experience the good news of the gospel. Right? So when we think about our worship services, we're not asking, did I like it? But we're asking, did God like it? Was God pleased when I came in and praised his name? Was he honored with the, with the preaching of the word? Was it biblically faithful? Was what we were doing glorifying and honoring God? And was it accessible to people who aren't part of our community already? If someone came in from the outside and it was their first Sunday here, did they understand what was going on? Was it meaningful? Did they feel a sense of welcome and hospitality? So when I come in through the doors, if I'm mature in faith or I'm strong in faith, then my obligation isn't just to connect and to talk to people that I already know, but it's to go and pursue and to welcome the people who haven't already come. And it's even to be thinking about who in my life do I know that needs to be embraced by the community of faith, that needs to experience the love of God, that I could say, hey, why don't you come? We're having this thing. There's a dinner. There's an egg hunt. There's a worship service. There's a gathering of friends at my friend's house, and we just get together and talk and share our lives together. Who are the people in your life that you could invite? That's what we're thinking about. That doesn't mean that we don't talk to our friends. That doesn't mean that we want to hear music that connects with us. All those things are true. But it means then thinking through also, how do we make this accessible to people who didn't grow up in the church? How do we serve and love as leaders? What does it mean for us in relationship? Do we simply hang out with people that are like us? Or do we give to people who drain us? Now, you can't be with people who drain you all the time. You have to have your cup filled. But we recognize, and you know that this, there are people in your life that take extra effort, extra care, and extra love, and extra concern. But you who are strong are obligated to care for those who are weak. You can't do it 24-7, but we're obligated to engage in that conversation and to pursue that person, the one who's difficult to be around. You know why they're difficult to be around? Is because they're maybe strong in personality, but weak in faith. And as we love that person, as we encourage them, you see the change happen. I'll never forget when I was, uh, I went to the Great Escape one summer and a boy uh, was invited to come. There's a family in our church and he was invited to come because the mom of the family in our church invited her house cleaner son to come and his name was Michael. And from the moment he got down to the church, it was a week-long trip, and we rode a bus. From the moment he got on that bus, I could tell this was going to be a difficult week with this boy. He was the most negative person that I had ever met. He was so difficult. We were there over 4th of July, and there were no fireworks. He complained about that. He complained about the food. He complained about the bed. Somebody stole his wallet, and he complained about that, which I would have been complaining about too. I'm just like, oh, of all the people that get their money stolen at a church camp, why Michael? But me and this guy, Justin, who was an intern, we just said, we're going to love this kid as best we can with the power of the gospel flowing through us because it was so draining to talk with him and to say, oh, it's going to be fun. Come on, we're going to have a good time. I know the food's not that great, but come. it just was over and over and over again. And at the end of the week, 
you know, they have all these worship services and teaching about who Jesus is. And at the end of the week, you know, we're just like, oh, God, you're going to reward us with Michael coming to faith in Jesus on the last night. We, we know you're going to do it, God, because we've been really working hard for you, Lord. And that night came and they invited everyone to come down and Michael didn't go. Oh, man. Well, that's okay. We did our we did the best we could. Well, Justin had a conversation with Michael on the, the, the day after that, the day that we were leaving. And Michael, somehow, his heart was softened. And he began to, to see that God was good. And all the hurt that he experienced in his life didn't all go away. But he told Justin, he said, I want to have Jesus in my life. And he came to know Christ as his Savior. And it was just a, a joy to have this one little thing. Because the reality is that you know this in your life. That doesn't happen in a week most of the time. But it did in that moment. And here's the deal. Every time we have a conversation with someone who's difficult or challenging, we have the opportunity to just put a little bit of the gospel into their life, to show them a little bit more about who Jesus is. That's what it means that we who are strong have an obligation to the weak. That's what it means. So who are those people? You, we all have them. What does this say for us? And here's the, here's the motivating force. It's not about like, look, maybe the kid at the end of the week is going to commit his life to Christ. Why do we do it? Verse 3, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches or insults of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. The reason why we do this is because Jesus did it for us. Jesus came and entered into the brokenness of this world, the brokenness of your life, not to fix you or to get you set up or to give you a successful life, but to be in relationship with you to love you and to help you to know the love that the Father has for you, to invite the Holy Spirit into your life. Jesus welcomed you. And when you know that kind of welcome, when you know that kind of love, when you know that the God of the universe cares about you so much that he would send his one and only son to live and to die and to rise again, then that's what gives you the power and the motivation to continue to love the people who are the most difficult or to willing to say, you know, I don't like that song. But somebody in the room does. And so I'm going to sing it out loud so that they know it's a good song. I don't like the way the communion cups work. Who likes this? Nobody. Nobody likes this. And hopefully this is the last time we do it. But I'm going to do it with this little wafer that doesn't taste good. In this little Because it's the only way we've been able to do it. And I, you know what? It's okay. Hopefully next month we're going to do it differently. Praise God. Not that the bread that we use there tastes any better, really, but come on. The whole idea is that we're together as God's family, and we're saying we're willing to put up with things that we don't like in this world for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel, so that someone else could know the love that we know by being part of this family, by being part of God's family. And what does he say? Whatever was written, these old things, the Old Testament, all the stuff that Paul has been talking about through this whole letter, all those things encourage us through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures so that we might have hope. That we might have hope in this life. Because there are times during the week when you read what's going on in this world and you go, I just love losing hope. 
I'm losing hope because of what's going on in Ukraine. I'm losing hope about what I see happening in our country. I'm losing hope. There's all these reasons why we could lose hope. And Paul says, no, look back in the Old Testament and you see how broken and devastating it was. And yet God says, through his word, through the gospel, there is hope. We have something to live for. We have something to live for, you and I. It's to do what he's called us to do. Myra came in uh, to do the outreach choir and I was talking to her and I said, how are you doing? She's an older woman in our church and she goes, I'm hanging in there. God must have something for me to still do. No matter where we are in life, if we're alive, God has something for us to do, which is to worship him and to love others for that sake. So what does this say to us? Let's close it up here because we're going back to the Old Testament that everything that was written in the scriptures are applicable for us in life. And look in these last verses in here. Uh, Sometimes they're indented in different ways. But look at this in verse 9. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God. Who are the Gentiles? Right? Remember, Paul is a Jew, and his whole life was spent being separated and different from from the Gentiles. Nothing to do with them because they're unclean. And now here Paul is quoting the Old Testament, reminding those who were Jews in the church that says, these people have been, will, will be part of God's plan to be part of his family since time began. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. These are all quotes from the Old Testament. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, and even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. So who are the Gentiles to us now? Right? To, to Paul, they were people who were very different, culturally, linguistically, Everything they did was different, and yet Paul was reminding the Jews that they were the people that God wanted to draw to himself. So who are the most different people that you know of, that you're in relationship with you? They think the most differently, they look the most differently, they speak most differently. Those are the Gentiles. Those are the people that God has positioned you through relationship, through where you live and where you work, to bless in the name of Jesus, to invite, to have a coffee at a break, to say, let's go to the park together. Let's go to the sporting event together. Let's go play golf. Why don't you come over for dinner? Let's get to know each other. Not to try to cram anything down their throat, but to love them in Jesus' name, to welcome them in Jesus' name in the same way that he welcomed you. I mean, you know, restaurants do this all the time. They put out Make it clean and make it nice, make it easy for you. All you have to do is just come and sit down and you're served. Are we not as good at hospitality as the restaurants, as Chick-fil-A? Right? Let us open our lives and open our homes, open our dinner table, or open ourselves to the people that God has put around us to bear witness to the gospel. We who are strong. You don't have to be strong with muscles or with bank accounts or with intellect or with military to do this. The weaker you feel, the more powerfully you are equipped to serve and love Jesus in this way. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.